everybody, my name is Remy. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody, Jen Hatmaker here. I am your host of the For the Love podcast. And here you are with me. Welcome to the show. So we're in a series right now called For the Love of Podcasts. Look, this is my show. And so I do what I want to do. And I love podcasts. So um, as my guest said today, this is very meta. A podcast talking about podcasts. I don't care. Um, We have had some really outstanding hosts on the show. And oh, are you in for a treat today? Uh, um, the NPR and public radio nerds among us might need to find a paper bag to hyperventilate into. You have been warned. Oh, I loved my conversation today with the amazing Bim Adewunmi. Bim, Bim, B-I-M. So Bim was born and raised between the UK and Nigeria which she'll talk about a little bit, before she moved to the States about four years ago. Her career is just this winding path through entertainment journalism. She's worked in radio and magazines. She was a lifestyle columnist and editor at The Guardian for many years, and then a culture editor and senior culture writer at BuzzFeed News, where her work was actually nominated for a National Magazine Award. Nice. Clap, clap. She is currently the co-host of the wonderfully named podcast, Thirst Aid Kit, which is hilarious, Um, and seriously but joyfully explores the ways pop culture shapes desire. She's got a really cool co-host. We talk about her, too. But what we're going to deep dive into today is Bim's work as a producer on a little show. You might have heard of it. It is called... This American Life. (laughs) No big deal. This American Life, of which Bim is a producer. I mean, talk about an OG podcast. Um, This American Life's been on the air since 1995. Um, Back before podcasts were even what they are today. It had a different name back then. It was called Your Radio Playhouse. So good move on that name change. Um, If you don't know about American Life, it's, of course, hosted by Ira Glass. And the show is divided into acts and tells individual stories throughout the episode, but they're all kind of wrapped up into one beautiful theme. It's just a, it's just a masterclass in how to put out an amazing podcast. You really never know what you're going to get. Like one week, it uh, might be about people who decided the only way forward was kind of burn the whole house down. And the next week it might be people switched at birth or kids at summer camp or car, car salesmen at work. I mean, it just, it runs the gamut. So some of them are very ordinary kinds of stories, but told in such intricate ways that makes them uh, some just unforgettable. Um, and of course, This American Life has had so many brilliant podcasts and creators come through their ranks. Um, Sarah Koenig and Serial, uh, another brilliant podcast called S-Town. If you haven't listened to those, what are you doing? I could go on and on and on about the importance of This American Life, but I am excited for you to meet the producer, Bim, and hear about her incredible life and work, her charming and hilarious stories. I mean, she really pulls back the curtain for us and gives us a look. So please enjoy my conversation with the amazing Bim Adewunmi. So I am delighted to welcome you, Bim, to the For the Love podcast. I am just such a fan of everything you put your hand to, frankly. So thank you for saying yes to somebody else's podcast when this is like the stuff of your life already. (laughs) Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of meta, uh, you know, (laughs) looking inside a mirror while looking in a larger mirror, but it's all good. That's right. That's right. So what I will do is I will, I will tweet this and then I will screenshot it and put it on Instagram. Also very meta. We'll just like (laughs) dial it in as much as we possibly can. Fantastic. I have um, told our listeners about you, your amazing credentials, the work that you do as a grown up. but I would love to 
go back in the story, if you don't mind, um, sort of to the beginning and hear a little bit more about your childhood in your own words. So if you would just tell us a little bit about young Bim, what was it like growing up? Where were you? What kind of a kid were you? Like just sort of in general, what was your childhood like? Right. Um, well, I was, um, I was very lucky, um, because I grew up, um, over the, over two continents, basically. Mm. Um, my family, um, is marvelously placed between the UK and Nigeria. Um, my parents, um, are British Nigerians. Um, and so they moved to the UK in the seventies and I came along in the very early eighties. Um, I'm the second child of four. And oftentimes I think of myself, uh, I think of that rather as, as, the bulk of my of my identity is that I am a second child who is also an older sister to two uh, young men. So I feel like a lot of my um, philosophy in life is pretty, it, it hews very closely to being a second child, which is I'm not like this um, out and out leader. I yeah. will lead if I have to. <laughs> but generally speaking, I'm looking to, um, you know, my sister is incredibly smart. She's very wise. So I'm used to looking to her and kind of like, hey, what do you think? Sure. <laughs> and sure. either she confirms or she deviates from what I'm thinking. And if it's better for me, more often than not, I will go with my wiser sister's, idea, you know, her own <laughs> yes. idea. On the other hand, I was also a very uh, theatrical child. I was very yeah. dramatic. Um I was also deeply sensitive, much mm. to the annoyance, uh, uh, you know, but eventual acceptance of my family because I was, <laughs> yes. I was, I mean, in many ways I was an annoying uh, child. I was <laughs> loud and at the same time, you know, oddly introspective. I'm a huge diary keeper. I wrote, ah, I wrote yes. yes, I, I thought, you know, I kept imagining my life as, you know, eventually someone will want to read about this. So I better write all of this down. So like I said, I had a very inflated sense of my own importance. I was like, oh no, people are going to want to know about your childhood. I've gone back to read some of my diaries and they are the most boring, mundane nonsense you ever read. But I really believed it. Um, You know, and I I think I grew up in a very supportive uh, household, you know. So I was was a secure child. I was in many Mm. ways deeply privileged um and then you know that happened in nigeria and in the uk Mm. my parents were just um they were very indulgent of me uh, and i think that really helped me kind of figure out what it is that i liked and what i didn't like Mm -hmm. and that really kind of allowed me to you know to kind of settle into myself without much interference and i think Mm. that's something that's held me in quite good stead when it comes to my life my career you know my, my feelings of self Mm. Oh, I love the way that you put that. I'm also tickled to hear you sort of cite your second in second child sort of as your North Star because I'm the oldest of four. Uh, and yeah. I am like, where is my microphone? Like, <laughs> may I run for office? Like, it, would somebody like to vote me up? I mean, it's so funny. What you're saying is so real. Um, I love how you just talked about your parents and sort of giving you that s- sort of steadying the ship for you. Um, as you moved into young adulthood. So to that end, when did you discover, I mean, obviously you're a journal writer, so something was in you to birth stories, but when did you discover that you love both hearing and telling stories? And I'm wondering if your family, did they cheer you on in your career choice? Like what eventually made you pack up and move across the pond? Well, I mean, I learned um, very early that I loved hearing stories, um, but I also really loved telling stories. Um, one of my memories, um, very distinct, I must have been about maybe five or six, mm. and everyone was, I come from a very large family, extended mm-hmm. family. So I think there was a whole bunch of us. Um, this is when we were living in, in Nigeria, mm-hmm. and everyone was kind of talking. And we know we're loud talkers. Everyone's kind of chiming in and doing all this stuff. And I was trying to get my story out, and no one was listening to me because, you know, okay. I had, had a very small voice. And so apparently I, I climbed onto the coffee table, um, and I yelled, everybody shut up. <laughs> And my dad very gently kind of was like, oh, no, 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 no. Mm. We did not do that. And I was like, well, no one's listening. And dad was kind of like, well, you wait your turn. And yeah, I was, I was so justified. I was like, no, no, you don't understand. It's because no one's listening. And this is the only way. And my dad was like, no. I, I remember my dad's face just kind of like eyebrows up. Like, what are you doing? Totally. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess not this. Um, so I oh. love telling stories. I think 
initially I was a bit of a confused child, you know, classic second child as yeah. we established. Um, yes. But I remember my sister, for example, knew who she was going to be and what she wanted to do very early on in life. And they would ask me a similar question. I've been, what do you want to do? And I would always have these really wafty answers. Like, I don't know, a butterfly? And they'd be like, no, 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 that's <laughs> yes. not a real job. Yes. <laughs> so I was, I was kind of indulged as, as the second mm. child who gets to kind of, you know, drift a little bit. My sister was like the person on the straight and narrow. And I was yeah. someone who was like discovering myself. Yes. So for a long time, I said to my family, I was going to go into pharmacology because um, okay. it seemed like a smart, sensible thing to do. And everyone mm. kind of indulged that. They were like, OK, sure, that's what you want to do. Turns out I was terrible at sciences. Well, tricky. Um, That's going to make that a tricky career path. Yeah, very, very tricky. And so eventually I kind of switched and I said, oh, no, actually, I think I'm going to become a journalist. And my dad, after me saying for years I was going to be a pharmacologist, was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And I was like, wait, what? And he was like, yeah, it seems it seems sensible. You've always been very good at English language, English literature, and, you know, you're a good blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, that sounds good. And I was like, wait, why didn't you stop me when I said I wanted to go into pharmacology? And he said, oh, no, you seemed quite happy with that. And I was like, sir, if you have an opinion, I urge you to raise your voice. <laughs> now is the time. Truly. On the front end of a $100,000 degree. Truly. Yes. And he was, you know, bless him. He was like, oh, I just assumed. No, no, English, yeah, journalism sounds good for you. And I was oh, like, oh, great. great. Thanks, Dad. So, yeah, so I kind of switched in the middle of, you know, doing all my science. I was doing chemistry and biology and mm. and psychology. And uh, and then I switched to my second year at um, sixth form and started doing kind of stuff for my journalism career. Mm. And, yeah, so that's what I ended up studying at school. And my parents, yeah, they were supremely, supremely supportive. And I'm really glad of it. They, they are very wonderfully hands off when I need them to be. Mm. Um, and that kind of really allows you to kind of go forth and do what you want to do. So I was kind of a journalist for a good number of years in the UK. Uh, mm -hmm. I was working at The Guardian, obviously. But right. before then, I was working, I did a little bit of radio at the BBC. I um, also worked on local newspapers, which are obviously now mostly dead because mm -hmm. journalism has truly changed. I, I remember right. when we when we graduated, we had a conversation with our one of our lecturers and we were like, huh, you've prepared us mm. for jobs that don't exist anymore. Thanks. Really? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it was kind of a, a difficult time to 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 graduate. But yes. I, I, I was very lucky. My degree was in multimedia journalism. So yep. I, I did radio and TV and print. And I did a bit of radio, um, did not like TV, so that stopped hmm. very quickly. And then I kind of went into print. And, yeah, I had a really nice career. Um, it was a freelance for many years, which yep. is one of the most precarious places totally. uh, a person can be. But I did that, and I loved it, and I learned so much. And I had the benefit of some really, really wonderful editors along the hmm. way. People who, you know, would probably balk at me calling their mentors, but they kind of were that. Yeah. So they, they really kind of nurtured something and helped me become a better writer and you know a very good editor and that's something mm. that i still have with me now and it's something that and again these are transferable skills so Absolutely. they don't even die in in one place so that's been a very that's been like a truly lucky break for me did you have your eye at all on the united states or did, was that more like a matter of circumstance and opportunity or was that was that you thinking i'd like to try my hand sort of over in that in that place in that culture it was a bit of both you know a lot of culture, a lot of popular culture, people think about America um, in a very specific way. And that's yeah. because of the culture that gets exported. I think right. for many people, you know, so much of America seems familiar to us before we even arrive here. Hmm. Um, you know, the architecture looks a certain way, yeah. the, the, you know, all the various accents. It's such a massive landmass. It's endlessly interesting. Um, and it has all these different kinds of cultures within this larger culture. So I think I was always interested in the idea of being in, in America. So that was something that was at the back of my mind. Like, you know, one day I would like to mm -hmm. work in America. So I, I left The Guardian. I went to work at um, BuzzFeed News um, yeah. in London. Um, they had a London office. They still do. And... Um, the option suddenly became something that was more concrete. And knowing that they had an American office, I kind mm -hmm. of asked at the time of, you know, during at the, the option, the, the part where they offered me the job, I was like, huh, you have an American office. I would like to mm. go there perhaps for one year on a sort of a, a secondment. 
um, and just kind of work out of that office. And that, uh-huh. that was it. That was that happened. So I did a year in the London office as culture editor. Okay. And then I moved to New York. Um, yeah. And, and one of the things I asked for when I was leaving was, um, okay, so when I get to America, I don't want to edit anyone anymore. I want to do some writing. I want to go back. Okay. To, I want to go back to being a writer because I was editing in the UK, which I found really fulfilling. Mm-hmm. But I was also kind of getting itchy feet because I, yep. I missed writing so much. Totally. I think... I think we all know our strengths and I think I was a very good editor, but I think I'm a better writer. So the urge was to kind of get back into writing. So yes, I moved to America half and half, partly because I'd always had this idea of living here, but also the opportunity definitely presented itself. One of the curious side effects of globalization is Mm. that New York doesn't feel all that different from London. That's a great point. And oftentimes I would say to people, they'd be like, oh, what's New York like? And I'd be like, oh, it's London with accents. It, you know, it's a little bit. It's, it's exactly the same kind of pace of life. It's exactly yeah. just as expensive. Um, yeah. Maybe New York is a little bit more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, I think America in general is more expensive than the UK. There are mm. definitely things I miss. I miss the NHS desperately. I miss mm. the BBC incredibly. I miss totally. it like a cousin. Yes. Um, I miss a lot of things. But I also I think about all the great things I've kind of been able to do here. I think for sure my career is very different because of my time in America. Yeah. I think I've been able to really do some really, uh, really wonderful journalism um, and have access to stories that I wouldn't have been able to reach um, mm. if I was still in the UK. I've made some really amazing friends here. So I've had this really, really wonderful really wonderful experience of coming to America in addition to all the you know the usual nonsense that comes with being mm. uh, being someone who is uh, not in their home country sure. uh, and also America in these times I came specifically yeah. I was meant to be here for a year I was going to cover the election ah bless Gosh. right mm. yeah what a what a world uh, what a world you came <laughs> over world. here to cover truly but I thought oh I'll be done in a year you know whoever uh. will be in the office will be in office and then I'll just go back to London it'll be fine and then drop oh, yeah. one and I was like oh, I guess I'm going nowhere yeah so I kind of spoke to my editor and I was like I think I should stay and she was like yeah I think you should too so okay so, that, so you just course corrected like on yeah. the spot decided to stay I can I mean I can see why it's just a constant constant news cycle at this point and um, we're relying on journalists at this point to do their work with integrity and that matters gosh it's always mattered but it matters so much right now guys, Jen with a quick break and a recommendation about a resource I think is really, really interesting. So tons of us are juggling multiple hats, you know, career, home, family, kids, and maybe you're like me and you see someone doing something cool that interests you. Or maybe you just have a big idea for a great business or a new venture, but you're not sure where to start. So here is a great place to start with Skillshare. So Skillshare is basically an online community for creators. You've been wanting to get into photography? They have classes for that. Want to learn how to use and grow social media? They have one for that too. Guys, they have more than 25,000 classes in design, business, tons more. So you can join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a pretty cool offer just for my listeners. Skillshare is offering the For the Love community two months of unlimited access to over 25,000 classes for absolutely free. Super easy to sign up. Just go to Skillshare dot com slash for the love and you can start your two free months right away so this is a great investment in you in your work in your creativity in your dreams in your future this is a no-brainer so skillshare.com slash for the love okay back to our show Let's talk for a minute about um, you making the leap over to podcasting. Um, how how was that for you? And, and what made you make that decision? And were you just kind of interested in a new canvas upon which to paint? And of course, podcasting is such a fantastic, you know, sort of community right now. What a wonderful way to get and give information. I just, I would love for, I'd love to hear you talk about that transition over, what that was like for you. 
Sure. Um, I think a very important thing for me is that I have always loved radio. Um, my very first professional job as a journalist was in radio. Mm. Um, it's the thing that I, I think it's a deeply um, important and intimate way to, to get news and opinion to people. I think I found it, I always found it a very romantic medium. I uh-huh. always thought there was something about, you know, I still have, I have a radio that I have had for about 20 years. Well, just under 20 years. Um, it's an old, it's a proper, you know, you tune in, it requires, sure. it has an aerial and I have nice. to kind of, you know, scan to find the station, hmm. etc. But it's traveled with me all over the world. And, you know, I've taken it with me when I've been to Nigeria again. I've taken it, I lived in Berlin for a few months. I took it with me so I could tune in. I remember listening to NPR when I was in Berlin. Uh, shout out to Terry Gross. Uh, mm. I, I listen to a lot of Terry Gross yes. in Berlin. Uh, it's gone with me when I moved to California. It's moved. It's wow. come with me back to New York. It's current. It lives in my bathroom constantly. I turn it on first thing in the morning. So I really love the medium. So I always wanted to come back to radio. I, as much as I love writing, and I really love writing. Um, mm. It seemed to me that radio was a different way to kind of reach people. And yeah. podcasting is obviously the other, you know, you don't even need a radio for podcasting. That's right. Um, and I just really loved, I love the the, the the kind of stories that you get to tell. Audio is such a special um, medium. I think mm. so often as a writer, you are writing something, and you're writing it in your own voice. And then yes. however it gets interpreted is in the other, is in the That's reader. Right in the reader's head. And I think that is Mm. a wonderful thing because it allows you to place yourself in a story in a very particular way. But I think the other thing with audio is that you actually get to hear it in the writer's voice, in the person's voice. And that is quite a special thing. That is an entirely different way to consume media. Um, Absolutely. So I really loved that. It felt like a new new canvas, yes, but also one of the oldest canvases in terms of my own personal history. I love radio. It's the thing that I... That's, you know, that's what we played when we were little. My sister and I would pretend to run a radio station. It's it's something that I, 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 I yeah, I felt incredibly drawn to. And so when the opportunity arose yeah. to kind of, you know, come to this American life, it just seemed yes. the most perfect, I mean, no-brainer. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, it's just, that's just, it's peak. That's just a peak experience, show, host, everything. Let's, I'd love to weave our way through sort of your, your podcasting um, career. You started, right? You cut your teeth on Thirst Aid Kit. Hilarious. It's the funniest (laughs) name. It's the funniest name I've ever heard. Um, So I'd love to hear about that a little bit. And then really just earlier this year, right? You joined This American Life as a producer, that's right. Yes. Yeah, just so no big deal. Just this American life. That's all. Um, so we'd love to hear how you let's hear about Thirst Aid Kit. We'd love to hear what brought you to this American life. Were you a fan like the rest of us before you joined? Um, you know, Ira Glass is kind of the gold standard of podcast hosts and very OG. Um, so we'd just love to hear that whole thing, how you started, how you got there, what it's been like since you've been on the show. Right. Um, so, yeah, so we started doing First Aid Kit um, back at BuzzFeed News in 2017. It felt like this place where you could have these conversations about, you know, what kind of podcast do you want to make? What do you want to say? What do you yeah. want to do? And you were listened to. And so the idea for a podcast kind of had been swirling around. Let's try something. They would already had massive success with another round which is hosted by uh, Tracy Clayton and Heaven Negatu. So they had like this, uh, you know, there was clearly an evidence, there was evidence yeah. of success and, and ability. And so that was never the worry. But trying to find the thing that we would talk about, that we would be able to kind of, right, it, it would, you know, it would be something that could grow, that could be. And my friend Nicole, who is also this amazing poet and writer, she is perhaps one of the best storytellers uh, that I know. And she, we had, you know, we met on the internet and we'd been talking for years on the internet and we finally met a couple of times. I was in New York. She was in New York before Mm. I moved here. And so we had a, you know, we met in person and we were like, oh my God, we get on in person too. This is great. We would would often joke, you know, sometimes on Twitter and be like, oh my God, are we cousins? Are we long cousins? (laughs) And so, yeah, so she became a friend and then she moved to New York um, to, to kind of, you know, work on her writing. And, we were talking and we were saying, you know, what something we'd always wanted to talk about was this idea of, you know, how pop culture essentially 
designs who we fancy and how we fancy them. And none of this mm. is incidental. Nobody arrives as a baby on this planet and it's kind of like, well, I know exactly all the people I'm going to fancy before I die. Right. It's something that is cultivated in us. And I think we were so, you know, so interested in the idea of exploring pop culture. We're both huge pop culture fans. Yeah. Um, both a little bit boy crazy when we were little. So we clearly mm-hmm. have ideas of, you know, how we got to be the way we are, the things that we like, the things that we see. And those two things kind of work together. And, you know, we were also very aware that we were two black women um, right. talking about this. And it felt like there was a lack of that in, in the arena, generally yeah. podcasting, but also specifically about pop culture um, and specifically about pop culture and in particular lust and desire. So it yeah. felt like a really organic thing. And we, we, we were so, so lucky. I think people often imagine a podcast to be, you know, two people, maybe two people in a room just riffing. And it's like, if I told you the amount of planning right. it takes to sound spontaneous and fun, totally. you would not believe me. Yes. <laughs> and I think for many people, yeah, it's kind of like, oh, you and Nicole just have a chat every week. And it's right. like, we do not. We do. We spend a week preparing to totally. bring you that stuff. So, yeah, every time, mm. every time I look at Nicole, I'm like, wow, I really lucked out. And I got like the best person to do this with. And yes. she's also like a very good friend. And I love her dearly. So that, that's been like a really wonderful experience. So Coming to This American Life, I had um, just left my job at BuzzFeed News. Um, I kind of was, um, I wrote I wrote a play um, mm. and it was being staged in London. And wow. it felt like a very good time to kind of look into that as a thing that maybe I could kind of do on a more, you know, dedicate more hours to do more of. Um, so, you know, in the end I had, there were a number of things that went into the decision and then basically I... Um, yeah, I chose to to quit my job at BuzzFeed yeah. News, despite, you know, being generally quite happy there. Mm. And, um, you know, in the middle of that, I was told about this vacancy at This American Life. And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? Like, let's mm. like what's the worst that can happen? It right. Could be, you know, and then I'll just, you know, I'll have quit anyway, so it's fine. And instead I got the job and I was like, huh, I guess I'm not going to have six months <laughs> to write my next play. I'm going to have right. to do this. And again, one of those really wonderful things where, yes, I had been a fan for so long. Like, you know, it's something I I had a favorite episode. I would tell people about my favorite episode. I, I listened, you know, and this is I was a fan even when we were living when I was living in London where, you know, it's not like the it wasn't there every week. It wasn't something that kind of. I didn't listen to it live on the radio. I kind of mm-hmm. listened to it as and when. And but I but I really really loved the show. And so there was this thing of, oh wow, I'm going to be working on yeah. something that I really enjoyed and admired from afar for a very long time. Um, and you know, a part of you, despite you know, I'm from I'm from London, so we're we're I'm I'm British, so we're very cool people in terms That's of right. just like we don't really respond to. That's but right. I remember coming into the interview and Ira was you know sitting there and I was like oh my god it's Ira Glass right. <laughs> you have this moment of just kind of like oh my god it's his radio voice but in person wow and, oh. and you get over it obviously but sure. initially I was like oh my god Ira Glass and then I was like stop calling him by his full name in your mind uh, yeah. <laughs> <and> that, <laughs> um, but no it's been it's been wonderful he's um he's he's great to work with you know yeah. I think I think about people who have been doing a job for a very long time and are kind mm. of tied to this idea you know identity in a very specific way and he is he is a very very i mean obviously we've been listening for literally decades right. he's very very accomplished he knows exactly what he's doing and more than anything i think is still incredibly you know interested in learning about the world about stuff and that's that to me is really something that i want to kind of grow in myself and to mm. keep growing in that regard where you don't ever feel as though you have all the answers all the time, right. but remain open to things. And, you know, I, one of the first stories I ended up working with in my time here was producing Ira on a story. Yeah. And, you know, on the one hand, you're kind of shaking because you're like, oh my God, I better get this right. Ira is incredibly patient and mm. very, and just genuinely a good teacher, really very much a case of, okay, now you try it. Now you do this. Now yeah. you do that. And it's wonderful. It's really, it's really, uh, it's been a real gift for me because, you know, at this point I've been out of radio for several years and right. I wasn't entirely sure, how, you know, how to make my return. And, you know, everyone here at This American Life has been so good about lending me an ear mm. or, you know, telling me about this bit on Pro Tools or, you know, whatever. So it's been one of those things where I'm both I'm bringing all these transferable skills from all my other jobs, all my other lives. Mm. Um, but I also I'm actually learning on the job and it has been um quite exhilarating to kind of be learning new skills in Mm. real time. I love to hear that. 
but it's you know it's yeah it's great it's really great we've you know i i would also agree that something about i've listened to ira also for years and years we all have and um i am really inspired and admire his sense of wonder and curiosity that comes through loud and clear um just sort of a naturally open-handed position toward his guests and toward life and toward big questions and circumstances and i love that um i i have come from a a sort of community that's a little bit more in love with certainty and Mm -hmm. um being right or wrong and um, knowing all the things. And so I've actually learned a lot from that approach that um, there's just a wonderful um, way to live your life, which is with curiosity. And um, and I see that. And I'm glad to hear that behind the scenes is just as um, sort of open-handed. I, I, I think a lot of my listeners are probably wondering, because it's such a niche position and not everybody knows what it is. Can you just explain... What do what do you do? What does a producer of a national radio show and podcast actually do? What does that look like? Will you give us a kind of a peek behind the curtain um, at what sort of falls on your desk and the the chess pieces that you move around? Sure, I will do my best to, mm-hmm. to to kind of elucidate what exactly it is I do because sometimes I wake up and I'm like, what am I doing? Right. So <laughs> I think I think a, a good deal of this, the way I have been working anyway, and as I've come to understand, is essentially I am looking for stories to tell. I think mm-hmm. very specifically on this American life, we do the big and the small. Yes, we have stories that are kind of hitting the national news and you know the smaller you know the, what we would call you know back in the day because i am very old now but what mm. we would call human interest stories sure um you know I, I i cut my teeth on the features desk at the guardian so yeah there's a good amount of um sifting and trying to kind of locate the correct stories that you want to tell and mm. and broadening that net i think to kind of include stories that perhaps you have half you know half an inkling on you have some yeah. knowledge but not all the things and i think that's a that's a fairly good place to begin i do a lot of reading i think people don't recognize how much work mm-hmm. it is to locate stories and to totally and to make them you know new stories but also old stories things that you've heard before but told in a different way with a different narrator with a with a different lens whatever it is i think you know there are only so many stories i think for people to to understand and i think yeah what you're looking for each time is reframing that to make it make sense in the current landscape. So yeah, I do a lot of that. I'm, I read perhaps too much on the internet. Mm. I read a lot of books as well. It's remarkable how many stories um, are lingering inside other stories oh, that's good. as well. I think people do a lot of big reading and then forget the smaller elements of what makes the big story. Mm. And then you think, oh, no, this this is a, an untapped yes. line in this particular story. You know, oftentimes a sentence will stick with me that I read ages ago or somewhere, you know, in an otherwise different story. And then I'm like, wait, uh-huh. this person mentioned their mother. Where's the mother? And then you go uh, and look for that it's good. and there she is and she has this fascinating story so i think yes. a lot of it is kind of uncovering and trying to figure out how you want to go in and how you want to do it with this american life everyone knows every week we have a theme and then we find stories along yeah. that theme and oftentimes you know stories will present themselves and you know maybe even around the larger story there's a smaller story and mm. that's something to also think about i think you're also thinking quite strategically very tactically the show is you know an hour long Right. On the radio. And so you are also thinking of stories in terms of how long it will take to tell a uh-huh. story. Yep. And so that's another part of my brain that I'm engaging. I come from, you know, initially newspaper and magazine writing where you had a page, you had a word count because right. you had a page outlined, you know, you had a layout to fill. And then I moved to online writing where the word count was less um, Stringent, important. Right. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. And then you come back to radio and it's like, no, time is absolutely of the essence. You that's absolutely right. have to get it right. So that's been a really wonderful way of retraining my brain to kind of get as much mm-hmm. pertinent information into a story as the time will allow and making it something that feels complete regardless of how long it is. And mm-hmm. that's that's a very different skill as well. So, yeah, totally. ultimately, I'm doing a lot of reading. I'm doing a lot of calling around, a lot of talking to people, trying yep. to kind of coax stories out of people, trying to understand if there is a there there, which is mm-hmm. another important skill. It's kind of, again, old school newspaper speakers to call it uh, nuisance. Yes. And trying to figure out what feels like news and what is actually not that 
quite interesting. I think oh. a lot of people, you know, it's kind of like how your dreams are very interesting, but only to you. That's right. But then ever so often you have this conversation where you think, okay, that's yeah. the story. Oh, yeah. And yeah, so that's that's always thrilling to kind of hear something and kind of go, oh, no, I know what this is. And I'm so interested mm. in it. And, you know, bringing that story to a pitch meeting yep. and kind of seeing people's faces light up and you think, yep, I did it. That's totally. great. And that feels really good. So, yeah, so it's a case of, and that's the other thing as well. For every story you present, everything you pitch wherever there's a yes is just as likely to be a no so yep, that's right you, really, you can't be too precious about any of it you really cannot and your your skin gets thick quick you're like oh but i thought it was a great idea and everyone's like we are telling you categorically it is not you go <laughs> right. oh okay good good good, good. thanks uh, that's so great i appreciate you kind of explaining that because as consumers you know, it's easy. It's kind of like you mentioned earlier um, about you and your your partner on the other podcast. It's easy just to listen and think, oh, well, this just feels super organic. And you probably just hopped on here and just spun a yarn, you know, yeah. for this amount of time. But in, in reality, the amount of labor and heavy lifting that goes on behind a well-run podcast is so much. And being able to curate stories and information is a real specific skill set. Mm -hmm. And so we get the finished product where we think, well, sure, you, that story came across your desk and you just sort of jotted down a few notes and off you went. And it's just the farthest thing from the truth. It takes so right. many hours to produce that one hour. And people, it takes real people time. Yeah. I think people forget also that the talking is just one part of radio. That's right. We have an amazing sound engineer. We have amazing, you know, it's a whole team yes. of people making it sound a certain way. There is sound design. There is, you know, music rights. There is sometimes we commission oh, music. All of that goes into making one hour of radio that, you you know, you know to expect you're going to listen to your local NPR station and get This American Life. And it's yeah. like for that seven minute piece, 12 people worked. That's right. That's <laughs> to make right. it sound effortless and make it sound like something you wanted to hear and wanted to stay with and something you're going to talk about with your friends. It's a lot of people hours that go into making it and to make it sound so effortless. I, I think about that all the time. It's something yeah. that we are constantly kind of like, you don't want to sound overproduced, but you also mm. want to sound... You know, like, yeah, we've done some work here. This yes. wasn't just a thing. Like you said, it's not jotting down a few notes. It's it's intense. And sometimes, you know, you, you do a four-hour conversation and then literally it becomes a 12-minute story. And yeah. you think, blimey, all right, great. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know a question that's hard to answer honestly sometimes? It's that question, like, how are you? How many times have you thought you don't want the raw answer to that? I promise you, been there. Absolutely had moments where I needed someone to listen to my real and true and raw answers. So good counseling can do that. I'm such a believer. And one of my favorite partners in counseling is a fabulous service called BetterHelp. BetterHelp can connect you to a licensed therapist or counselor online so you can get help whenever and wherever you need it. You can talk to your counselor on your computer or phone anywhere in the world about once a week. It is a wonderful, pressure-free, convenient way to get some outside perspective and see your life through a different lens. BetterHelp is a truly affordable way to find the help that you need today. I believe in them so much. And so they are giving my listeners 10% off their first month with the code for the love. So here's what you do. Go to betterhelp.com slash for the love, and then use the code for the love and get started today. Okay. Back to our show. I'd love to hear, I don't, I don't even know which adjective to pick, but what, if you're just like looking backwards, what is either like one of the most either fascinating or the weirdest or most surprising story that you have uncovered, um, either as a producer or covered as a journalist? Right. So I, I, I haven't got that many kind of weird or out there stories mm. so far in my time at This American Life, but 
there is i mean not that i can even talk about right now there is one i'm working on right now that is just really small and delightful and perfect and i'm sure you'll hear it in the coming in the coming weeks but there is a story that i remember um when i was working at buzzfeed news um and this was a thing that started out quite small and then got bigger and bigger and bigger and i ended up doing massive amounts of research and i learned so much hmm. but we were talking about very specifically farmers in okay. america and you know, we had this back and forth conversation. My editor and I were thinking about ways of covering this and land and whatever. And and then we kind of narrowed it and said, okay, well, let's talk about black farmers, talk about yeah. African-American farmers. And we ended up again talking about this and uncovering all this stuff or just learning all this stuff about, you know, the ways in which so many black farmers have been duped out of their land over the, yes. you know, the years. And just understanding how it is that the number of black farmers was so small hmm. compared to, you know, the number of black people in this country mm. and the history of black people and the land in this country, you know, a very specific mm -hmm. shift from rural life to urban life and right. very specifically also essentially the ways in which, yeah, governments and, and several agencies had kind of conspired to make right. sure that land was no longer in the hands of black people. So exactly. it was like this very disturbing thing on the one hand. Hmm. And then I began talking to somebody who, um, she's a friend, and she mentioned that her family had um, blueberries. This was their this was their business. Okay. They, they were blueberry farmers. And I'd never, ever thought about blueberry farmers in my right. life right. prior right. to this. You know, right. I eat blueberries, I, I enjoy right. a blueberry muffin or a blueberry pancake, sure. but it's not something that I'm thinking about. And she said, oh, yeah, when, when we were kids, you know, that was basically our summer job. We would go back to, you know, the family homestead in, in Michigan in this small, small town. Hmm. And in the summertime, we would essentially pick blueberries, you know, and that was kind of how we earned some of our summer money, you know. Yeah. And I thought, OK, well, this is amazing. Like here uh -huh. in this very newsroom, my actual friend, yes. whose family is in this business. They are farmers and have been for a couple of generations. So there's like, there's history there. And so we went out to this small town called Covert in Michigan, okay. which is already a great name, Covert. I was like, sure. all right, this is, this is a character. This is great. Yes. And we got there. Um, she has like this very, very old relative, Miss Coralie. And she was, mm. um, she was amazing. Miss Coralie, okay. she was great. She was like in her 90s. Yeah. She was kind of, you know, slightly deaf. She was incredibly cheeky. Um, mm, she nice. was very, very funny. And she was like, she, I remember she said, what's your name? And I said, Bim. And she was like, huh? <laughs> and I said, Bim. And she goes, what kind of name is that? And I said, it's Nigerian. And she was like, mm -mm, you're in America now. And she was oh, so gosh. funny. No, she, was, she was a delight. She was one uh -huh. of those people. She, you know, she played in her church and she was incredible. She mm. used to be a teacher. And she said, you know, when I came out here, you know, my husband said he was going to do blueberries. And I was like, all right, you know. Mm. And so it became a very wonderful kind of side part of her life. She was involved, but she wasn't involved. Her son was this, you know, he'd been doing it for ages, but he was, you know, worried about legacy. He was worried about whether his kids would want it because, you know, he's in this small town in Michigan. Sure. His, his kids are in, you know, urban areas. They're in Chicago and whatnot. They're in, interested in stuff like music production and, right. you know, other stuff. And so he was like, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. This is something my father worked very hard on. And and it was fascinating. I went out, I learned about all the various varieties of, of blueberries. I learned about the harvest times I learned about the best I picked myself um a bucket of berries and it's incredible backbreaking hard work it can only be done when the sun is at the highest point in the sky so you are uh, sweating wow. because blueberries have to be dry you cannot harvest oh. a blueberry when it rains it's, it has to be yeah exactly we went to the processing plant I learned so much and it was uh, this endlessly fascinating every new bit of information led yes. to yet more information and it was just like this incredible learning experience for yes. me so I was writing the story having come from a place of zero knowledge to being sort of an expert, which is kind of what writers do. You learn yeah, about something, that's right. you become an expert, and then as soon as the story is filed, you empty your brain of it yeah. and go and learn something new. And I think this this was one of the more intense ones. And it means that every time I you know, I eat a blueberry now, I think, oh, I wonder if this is a Jersey berry or a Michigan berry. <laughs> so great. You know, and it feels really good to be able to, you know, to have this very specific knowledge that largely is useless outside of this arena, Ugh. but it feels good. Uh, so great. I That sort of goes back to what you said earlier about some of the great stories are the, the big macro stories. You know, they're huge. They're everywhere. They're ubiquitous. It matters. But just as important and even sometimes more delightful are these little blueberry stories um, yes. that also it's 
Of course, you know this, but in the same way that that entire process of learning and research and experience and then ultimately like production delighted you, it delights your listeners and your readers. You know, that is just as exciting for us to consume when we get something so charming and beautiful and precious in this horrible world. And I... I love that you give both credence that yeah. you say these are these both matter um, in, as we tell stories, um, both the big and the small. And I, I positively see that in your work. Let me ask you this. So just kind of to that end, obviously, throughout your career from beginning to now, you have had tremendous reach on the things that people see and then ultimately what they think about, both big and small. And so I wonder if you can just talk for another minute about what that means to you and what you hope that your audience, wherever they find your work, wherever they have intersected your work, what are you hoping that they take away from what you are producing and putting out to the world? It's a difficult thing. I think we all obviously come to our work with intention. Um, I'm Muslim, and um, one of the things that we learned a lot when we were kids was that there is power even in intention. It's not the be-all and end-all. Obviously, once something comes out, it it depends on how other people interpret and so on. But a good intention, I think, is something that um, I think about a lot. Just, mm. just from that, from that experience, you know, so, to come to something with, with a very specific intention is is very important to me. One of the things I think about is when you write something, you are trying to, and as much as you have an idea of what you want to say, you are also trying to leave some room so that the reader can also join in and and learn something, uh, sometimes of their own research. Mm. I think putting in information. You know, especially when you're writing online, you can put a link to something and people will click and that'll take them down a rabbit hole of stuff. But even if you even if they're reading it in a newspaper or a magazine, I think a physical, you know, newspaper, physical magazine, if you if you put enough questions into the way you write, if you put enough curiosity, yeah. if you make people kind of think, huh, I wonder what this means. And I I do think about this is again going back to when it comes to writing, crafting a story what you leave out is is just as important as what you put in. Mm. And I think if you can direct people, what I'm always looking for when I write or make any kind of, you know, any kind of story really is for people to kind of ask a question, get an answer, but also push them into asking more questions, yes. further questions and makes them go somewhere else and look for something else. I think that's mm. the thing that I want. I want my, uh, you know, at my most pompous, I always say, I hope my work makes you look up other work. I, I think good. I want someone to kind of look at something and say, huh, I've learned something today and I want to learn more. I really appreciate that because um, we we just wrapped up a series on this show uh, essentially about media literacy. And um, what we're seeing in mass right now as a part of just the average media diet is such low hanging fruit all the time. And it's almost the choice of the people to have um, incredibly just encapsulated ideas, completely summed up um, with a period at the end, definitive um, uh, statements that we ingest and then just get, well, that's what it is. That's the mm-hmm. beginning and the end of the story and no further investigation is needed. And now we know even more where we stand. And it, you know, of course reinforces the bias that we're looking to reinforce. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just find your approach important and and largely missing from the average media consumer right now, which is I'd like to come to this piece with a sense of openness or curiosity to it that I'm going to do a little bit more work and dig a little bit further. And um, I, I think that is has a lot of journalistic integrity to it. And I, I really honor that in your approach. And I love to see our culture swing back to that in some way, where we mm-hmm. are not just digesting this just sort of garbage uh, journalism, for lack of a better word, I'm not sure what even to call it at this point, um, that are simply, uh, you know, very, not much more than just bias reinforcements. And so I, I hope to see that. And I I hope that other people are taking their cues. Um, and all the most of the journalists that I have spoken to and interviewed, are inc- they have 
full integrity and they take their calling and their work so seriously. And, um, I, I would love to see your work more honored, um, yeah, in our culture. That's very kind. Let me ask you this question, then we'll wrap it up. Sure. Um, with all the media experience and exposure, um, to people and stories under your belt, I am curious, who do you think personally that we should be um, hearing from more right now, who should we be listening to? Um, what kinds of stories do you think we should be talking about, whether it's your own um, or just, you know, culture at large? Like if you said this, these are this is either a person or a place or a storyline. I, I would hope your listeners would start paying more attention to who would that be? I think inevitably, um, when we talk about mainstream journalism, we are talking about fairly established um, ideas and stories. And so I think increasingly we have to be turning our attention to the people outside of that. Yes. And so when I think about the things that are missing, I think about I think about myself. So I I, I come at a point of several intersections. I am yes. I am black. I'm a woman. I'm a Muslim. Mm-hmm. I am a foreigner. I'm an immigrant. Mm. I am. I'm Nigerian, I am British, I have this accent. Yes. (laughs) You know, I'm straight, I'm cis. There are all Mm. these labels that come with me and they all kind of, you know, very crudely, if you were to put them into a column, there are some minuses and there are many pluses. Yeah. So I think increasingly we need to find the people for whom society has stacked up the minuses. I think about Mm. all the voices on the fringes, the people who, you know, people often say that thing about they haven't got a voice and that's completely untrue. People have a voice. We just don't amplify them. That's right. For various reasons. And so a story that I've been thinking about a lot and trying to figure out ways to kind of get more people to to tell stories from those communities, there's been a a horrible spate of um, the murders of black trans women. Yes. And this is something that is happening in real time. That's right. We are observing it. We see the hashtags. We see the names. We have all these stories of all these women. Mm. And not anything, nothing seems to be happening. I yeah. think it's one of those things where we say the names, we mourn, we we, we rail against it, we, we, we talk about it, and then nothing changes. It is something that I think, if I was a member of that community... What does that tell me about how I am seen, how I am viewed, That's right. my, my worth in this, in this community? And I, I do think that all of us have a responsibility to look after our most vulnerable um, society members. Mm. And a lot of the time we're not because it's not convenient or right. it seems like more hard work or yeah. who will read about this, who will listen about this? And the answer is, right. well, you won't know until you do the thing. And I think... Mm. In terms of what journalism's job is, it's to, to you know, ask questions and to do your best to make sure those questions are answered and situations, conditions are made better. We, we have to be able to go to the places of power yes. and make change for the better because it, it, it doesn't, it's, it feels like it's one community, but in reality, it's all of us. We're all... We're all in this. I think about mm. the social contract. Many of us are here because somebody else sacrificed something. That's right. And I think when you don't, you know, I think about, I think about myself as a black person mm. and railing against the way in which black stories, black communities have been covered in, in mm. mainstream press. And we can all recognize when we see racism. We, we right. understand when we see that. And yet... You don't necessarily think about other people who are in a different, you know, they, they come at a different ism. Yeah. And I think that's something that we all can stand to do a lot more about. And I, I do think also not to reduce the experience of black trans women to purely violence. We are all human beings. There are joyful moments and days and years for all of us. And I think also what I'm trying my best to do is to not tell a narrow story about, you know, a, a person or a people's um, existence. We are not all, you know, the worst or the, or the, the you know, the, the least good thing that happens to us. There are, there are so many ways to tell stories. And like I said, when you, when you tell a story, think about what you're also leaving out. And sometimes that's whatever you feel you've left out in a story, perhaps that's where you need to refocus your, your attention to. So, so yeah, I would do, I would be, 
so glad and I do think a lot about who we need to be hearing more from and increasingly it's less from people like me which is a very mm. rich thing for me to say as I yes. talk on a podcast about my mm. career but I think there are ways that we can elevate the voices of people people who by the way have never been quiet they just mm. have been ignored that's and right so I think that's an important thing to also kind of note Oh, well, that's like the perfect way to close. I couldn't possibly agree with you more and really appreciate that wisdom. So here is a good question. What are you going to do today to just help you feel on top of your game? Maybe you started the day with yoga. Maybe later you're going to lock the door and hop in the bath and lose yourself in a great book. Every single day, we make sure that we're taking care of ourselves. And thankfully, the folks at FabFitFun are here to make self-care super simple. FabFitFun is a seasonal subscription box. It has 8 to 10 full-size beauty fitness, fashion, and lifestyle products inside every box. In fact, every single FabFitFun box has a value of at least over $200. And you get it for $49.99. And once a season, you can visit their website to start customizing your own box. In fact, FabFitFun just shared a few things they're working on for the upcoming winter box. So now you get to contemplate fun things like would I rather have the unhide faux fur blanket or the Rebecca Minkoff beanie set? I have, through my subscription to FabFitFun, discovered some products that are now my very favorite things um, that I have used in regular rotation and that I have also given as gifts. So to grab your own box, go to FabFitFun.com and then use the coupon FTL for $10 off your first box. Not bad. It's fabfitfun.com and then use the code FTL at checkout to get $10 off your very first box. Okay, guys, back to the show. All right, this is the wrap up here. Um, okay. we're, this whole series is obviously about podcasts. We're asking every guest in our series these. So just kind of chop your head. Uh, here's the first one. As you are producing and creating right now, do you have a dream guest? Right now, I do have a dream guest. It would be Danai Gurira. She is a Zimbabwean uh, American uh, playwright, an actor, an activist, and I think she is endlessly fascinating. I think oh. she's wildly talented. I love her plays. She's a big part of why I write plays. Um, I am endlessly inspired by her. She's also beautiful, and I want to mm. ask about her skincare regimen. <laughs> okay, well, listeners, we will link over to all of her work too, so you can peek into what this fascinating person is. Um, what's your favorite thing that you've learned thus far? from your work on This American Life? Oof, my favorite. I'm not entirely sure. Mm. Oof, let's see, my favorite thing. Honestly, I wouldn't say it's my favorite, but it's the most useful thing. Okay. And that is that I am learning uh, Pro Tools, which is an editing uh, platform. And I am learning it at a rate of knots. And I am (laughs) fascinated by how little I know, (laughs) but also by how quickly I'm learning. So uh, it's been like a revelation for me that, oh, it turns out my brain is still receptive to learning oh, things. How delightful. Yes. Very last question. And this is, we ask every guest, every series, this question is from an author that I love. And your answer can be whatever you want it to be. It can be like important and meaningful, or it can be like absolutely frivolous. So you just pick it. Um, but the question is, what is saving your life right now? The obvious thing is to save friends because they save my life every single day. But I think in terms of a thing, I have to say it has been for a very long time now, but it still works. And that is reading fan fiction. Oh, nice answer. I I love fanfic. I think it is just the most consuming, the most wonderful. And best of all, it's free. It lives on the Internet. People who make it love what they do and they love their community of readers. And I am grateful to be an enjoyer, a reader of fanfic, because it really has pulled me out of some of the most depressing days 
so far and I don't see that stopping or changing anytime soon. Nice. Oh, good shout out to the fanfic writers. I love that answer. <laughs> um, okay, Bam, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate literally everything you said today. I was listening. I was jotting down, scratching my notes over here and oh. just really learning from you and grateful that you're out there doing what you're doing and giving us such amazing content to think about and to learn from and to consider. Just keep going. We are over here cheering you on in every way. Thank you. I appreciate that very much. And same to you. Thank you so much. I've, I've obviously been watching you from a distance for a while, and I'm really, really glad that you exist and are out there doing work. What a nice thing to say. Okay, <laughs> back we go. Back to our other podcasts. <laughs> Thanks, Bim. Thank you, Jen. Woo. I loved that conversation. I don't know if you can hear it, but could you just hear my head just nodding and nodding and nodding, especially there at the end, like, ugh, when she said, let's start listening more to the people for whom culture has stacked up the minuses. I was like, whoa, and really grateful for her time. And wasn't she charming and interesting and smart and funny. Um, I'm going to link for those of you who want more information, everything BIM related, everything this American life related, we'll have linked over, go to jenhatmaker.com underneath the podcast tab. Um, Amanda builds that out for you every single week, which includes the entire transcript of our interview, plus pictures and bonus stuff, like definitely be using that resource. Okay, everybody, thanks for being here week in and week out. More to come in the For the Love podcast of podcasts. Um, Come back next week. See you then. That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed this chat. Be sure to subscribe to my mom's podcast and give it a thumbs up rating if you like it. From the whole Hatmaker family, I hope you have a great week and see you next time.